one of the most important questions that anybody can answer and find an answer for is the question of who is Jesus? Who is he? And as we've been seeing as we're in Luke, um, how things will go with a person ultimately, eternally, has to do with what they, how they respond to Jesus, how they answer that question. <clears throat> to believe in him is to build one's house on the rock. Uh, to disbelieve in him is to build it on sand, and the end will be destruction. Uh, to believe is to be part of God Almighty's family, we saw last week. To disbelieve is to be left out. To believe is to be saved, forgiven one's sin. Uh, to disbelieve is to be under God's judgment and condemnation for sin. All of this Jesus has been showing us and making clear. And yet knowing who Jesus is and believing in him, trusting in him, uh, it's not only uh, that, that it saves one from their sin, it saves us from our sin, which is obviously huge, I'm not minimizing that, but it's also accompanied by all kinds of other numerous blessings and all kinds of other help. Uh, so knowing Christ Jesus can be immensely practical, can have a lot of help in just everyday life. And so we're going to see this hopefully today as we work through Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. So I'll invite you to turn there with me. Uh, so we've just come through a section where Jesus has been teaching. He's been, uh, a, lot of, a lot of his words have been recorded as teaching and it's been passed on to us by Luke. Uh, so we've, we've learned, Jesus has said, that the one who is forgiven much is the one who loves much. That was back in chapter 7. We've seen him uh, explain why he taught in parables, and then he taught the uh, parable of the sower, and we, we examined that. Uh, and then he went on to, uh, not only the parable of the sower, but after that, to tell us to be careful then uh, how we hear, to be careful how we listen to what he says, uh, how we listen to the gospel, and how we respond to it. And then, uh, of course, he taught again that uh, those who do believe are, are part of uh, his family. He said last week, uh, my mother and my brothers are those who uh, hear the word of God and obey it, who listen to it, who do it. So he's been teaching, and all this teaching is ultimately there to call us to faith, to call us to trust in him. And now we, there's a bit of a transition here, and we get into some, some of his acts, some of his miracles, some of the things that he does and these also are instructive for us. This is also teaching through his acts. And likewise, as his words, so his actions are calling us to faith, to believe in him, to trust in this one. So in this section that we begin today, um, we're going to see four miracles here over the next few weeks that... Uh, well, I'll be gone for a couple of weeks, so we'll finish it when we get back. But uh, as we work through the rest of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, we're going to see four miracles that uh, highlight Jesus' authority for us. So it's going to begin today, we're going to see his authority over nature itself. Then we get into his authority over demons. And then we get into his authority over sickness and illness. And then ultimately death itself. Uh, then in chapter 9, Jesus is going to give some of this authority to his apostles who he sends out on a mission. And then after that, we learn of one more miracle. And then this all kind of reaches a climax when Peter uh, declares that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And that's chapter 9, verse 20. So this is, this is where we're headed. 
And uh, this is all part of a larger section starting in chapter 4, verse 14, goes through to near the end of chapter 9, verse 50, where Jesus is in the region of Galilee, ministering there. And, uh, and the central question of this whole section is, who is Jesus? It's this question of, uh, who is he? What's his identity? Is he revealing himself to, to the people? And so Luke is presenting to us Christ's teachings and his actions, which all together paint a portrait of who Jesus is. And so as we work through Luke, as we read it, and then as we uh, come on Sundays and, and, and we preach through it, uh, we're sort of along for this ride as Luke paints this picture. And we're with these people as they are trying to even figure this out. And we've seen some of this already, John the Baptist Having a question for Jesus as John's rotting away in prison, if, is, are you really the one? Uh, so we're, we're watching people try to figure this out. Of course, we have the benefit of stepping back, of reading the rest of the book and reading the rest of the New Testament. We can see it a little more clearly, but we can see how this played out in the lives of the, the, the disciples. And this question of who is Jesus is, uh, is explicitly raised in our text today. And so I'll just ask that question of us, who do you say that he is? And if you, you know, trust in him, you believe that he is, who the scriptures present him to be the son of God, I would ask another question of you, how does that affect your daily life? How does that make any difference to you on an ongoing basis? Uh, so I'll invite you to read with me and we'll consider these things. Um, chapter 8, verse 22. The word of God says, One day... Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were, filling, they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? So again, as this story comes to a close, uh, we see very clearly the disciples thinking over this question of Christ's identity, of Jesus' identity. And so I believe Luke has this here for us to do the same, to, to consider this question. Who then is this? Um, so that's what we're going to do in our time uh, in our remaining time. But even just before we jump into to that, uh, let's just examine the setting of this, this story, the scene here. So Luke tells us here of a day when Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and uh, they're going over to the other side of the lake. This lake is the Sea of Galilee. It has, goes by different names, uh, Lake Gennesaret, Sea of Tiberias. There's other names for it as well. And uh, Luke here just refers to it as a lake. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long. Uh, at its widest, it's just over 8 miles uh, wide. So it's, it's not a small lake. It's not the biggest lake there is, but it's not tiny either. So he gets into this boat. He's with his disciples. We're told that they sailed. So uh, this indicates that this isn't a, a, just a small uh, boat, which they rowed. Uh, this is a boat that, actually, that has a sail. It's a sailboat. Uh, it's big enough. For Jesus and at least his 12 disciples uh, to get in it with him. Um, 
Mark 4 tells us that other boats and other disciples were with him on this journey. Uh, Luke doesn't give us that information. Um, Luke's main focus is, uh, is what's going on in the boat that Jesus was in. And so we're told as they set out on this trip across the lake um, that, uh, that Jesus fell asleep. So we'll, we'll get to more that, we'll look at that more in a second. But as Jesus is sleeping, this storm arises, this windstorm sweeps down out of the mountains onto the lake, kicks up a storm. And uh, the Sea of Galilee is known for this uh, around it. It's a mountainous region. And, uh, and so wind can come out of that mountain range and kick up local storms. And the water can get very choppy and the seas rage. And it can be quite frightening and dangerous if you're out in the middle of it. And that's precisely what happened here. So Luke tells us that the vessel started filling with water. They were in danger of being swamped. And, uh, and Luke tells us that they were legitimately in danger. The end of verse verse 23. They were, they were in danger. And so this is the scene. And of course, uh, at the end of the story, everything's fine. If we just sort of jump ahead, everything's fine. They're okay. And they're left pondering who Jesus is. So uh, let's do that together. Who is Jesus? So first, notice that Jesus is truly human. He's truly man. This might seem like a, an odd observation to make. Um, but let's, let's look at this. He, he gets into the boat and he falls asleep. Sleep is not an attribute of God. Right? Sleep is not something that God needs. He does not grow weary. He does not get tired. He never slumbers. That's, that's a big part of who God is. Uh, he needs nothing. He lacks nothing. He does not tire out. Uh, that's not an attribute of God. Uh, again, the fact that God does not need anything is one of the things that actually makes him God. And so this here that Jesus is sleeping is very clear evidence of his humanity, and that it's a real humanity. Throughout history, throughout church history, uh, there have been people who, for various reasons, sometimes um, out of a, a desire to uphold Jesus' divinity, uh, nevertheless go too far and they end up denying Jesus' humanity as and they say it's not really, he wasn't really human or it wasn't a true humanity at all. Um, but this is an error. And in fact, we see this error early on, uh, before the New Testament's even com completed, we see this error. So in the book of 1 John, uh, John writes about this. And he says there, he makes a test of orthodoxy, how his readers uh, should test those who are teaching. Uh, and, and he says that um, if anyone denies that Jesus came in the flesh then they're false. That's a false spirit. That teacher is wrong, incorrect. So already there was a denial out there that Jesus had actually come in the flesh. And so that was an early heresy John was dealing with, early form of a heresy, where this idea that material things are bad, spiritual things are good, so Jesus could not have been actual physical human, uh, so he just appeared to be human in some way. So John says, if they are denying that he was, came in the flesh, then they're false and you're not to listen to them. So that, that, that's a, it, this was been, has been around very early on, and it's continued throughout church history in various forms. And the Bible's presentation is that Jesus really was a man. He truly was human. Last week we talked about this a little bit uh, when we looked at Jesus saying that uh, his mothers and brothers are those who uh, believe the word of God and, and do it. And I referred to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, 10 to 14, which 
tells us there that Jesus became flesh and blood just like us, just like the people he came to rescue in order to rescue his people, in order to make uh, believers his brothers and sisters. He became just like us, and we're told in, in, in Hebrews 2 as well that this was fitting in God's eyes, it was necessary in God's eyes, it was part of his plan that the eternal son would come to earth and take on a real humanity, a true human nature in order to rescue human beings and to make us his brothers and sisters, uh, all who would believe in him. And so the fact that he's a human being, truly became man, is good news for us. We need him to come and become like us and to take our place and to be the new and better Adam that we just sang about to rescue sinners. And so uh, Jesus, he not only took on a human nature, but he was a perfect man, a perfect human. And I think that we even see this implied here in this, uh, this text. Jesus is sleeping, fast asleep, through a wild storm. As waves are swamping in, we're told Jesus is asleep. Um, now, there's different, different people, you know, some people see that and they say, well, this can't be a true story. No one's going to sleep through that. Uh, there's different possible explanations for why he's sleeping through that. One, some people point to, uh, he might have just been that exhausted. Uh, sometimes people do get that exhausted that they sleep through virtually anything. And uh, that's a human possibility. Uh, just in his humanity, he's that exhausted. He's been pouring himself out, uh, you know, and ministering to others. He's truly tired, and now he's in a boat. Sometimes they even went away in order, in order to try to find rest, to get rest, and take some time and, and, re, and sleep and rest. And so this might be what's happening on this occasion, and he's just out. He's out like a light, we might say. So that's one possibility. I certainly think that's probably part of it. Another possibility is that um, he's sleeping so deeply because uh, there's no sin in him. There's, he's worried about nothing. Uh, there's nothing that's weighing on him and plaguing his mind. There's no sinful fear of any sort. And so he's just in deep rest, trusting in his Father and confident. You know, we, we, uh, we sometimes know, some of us, we're all different. We sleep differently. Some of us lay our head on the pillow, and uh, if it weren't for a really loud alarm, we would seemingly never wake up. Other people rest a little more lightly. Uh, I, I usually sleep pretty heavy. Um, but just even not that long ago, I had a night where I was, some things were on my mind, I was feeling anxious, and uh, I slept, but I woke up every time a train rolled through town. I didn't even know they rolled through town at night, but I heard every single horn, I think, that night, and I'd wake up because I was just sleeping lightly. And there was just this sort of underlying thing causing anxiety and troubling me, and it disturbed my sleep. So it's, I think it's probably a combination. Jesus is tired in his humanity. And so he's fast asleep, and he's at rest. He's at peace. There's, he's not sinfully worried and churning over things. Now, this true humanity is part of what makes the disciples wrestle with this question of who is he, of his identity. Because in so many ways, he just looks ordinary. He's a man. He eats like them. He has... They, they, uh, he, They've seen him um, suffer hardship, trial, weariness. Uh, he gets hungry and eats. Uh, later he would suffer and he would even be hung on a, on a cross. He weeps at one point, at least a couple points in his lifetime. And so he, he, he appears in one sense to be very ordinary. In fact, I think 
the testimony of Scripture is that there is nothing physically about his appearance that would even commend any of us to him. And so, uh, in one sense, he just, he's a man. And so then, then that, that leads to when these extraordinary things happen, like we see in this text, it raises the question of, uh, who is he? How can this be? There's clearly much more to him than mere humanity, but he is truly human. And so not only is he human, but we also see that he is truly God, who is worthy of our trust. He's truly God, who is worthy of our trust. So Jesus is sleeping in the boat, and then danger came upon them. The boat begins to fill with water, danger sets in, and so the disciples, they awaken him. Verse 24, they, they call out to him and say, Master, Master, we're perishing. Now these are, at least some of these disciples are skilled fishermen. They've grown up on this sea. They know this lake well. They've been out in boats before. They know what they're doing. And so this threat is very real. It's very serious. It's not like me being out there where I'd be panicking much sooner. They know what they're doing, and yet they're, they're, this is, tr- this is a, not a good situation. And so they think they're perishing. They call out to Jesus. And so Jesus wakes up, verse 24, as he rebukes the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Now if you compare this miracle with other Old Testament uh, miracles, a few things stand out. Uh, first, one thing is say is that sometimes if we read the Bible or we think of all the stories we learned growing up, we, we tend to think there were always miracles. There's just always miracles throughout all of history, and now is the only time we don't see them or whatever. Uh, but the fact is, throughout most of human history, most of the Old Testament, there weren't regular occasions where there were miracles. And typically when they appear, they're during times when the Lord is sending a messenger and is authenticating the truthfulness of his message. So Moses, for example, asks Pharaoh, or, or, or asks the Lord, like, how, why is you know, Pharaoh going to believe me? Right? And, and the Lord tells him to throw down his staff, turns into a snake, and, and he says, you're going to be my mouthpiece, and you're going to do miraculous things. I'm going to do them through you, and you're going to show Pharaoh that I mean business. Sure enough, Moses gets to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, why in the world would I let your people go? They're my slaves. And then Moses proceeds, the Lord through Moses proceeds to issue these plagues, and eventually they leave. Uh, We see again later miracles in the time of Elijah and Elisha. There you have the prophets of Baal and most of the the people worshiping Baal, a false god. And so Elijah is sent to call them back to worship the Lord. Uh, What right have you, Elijah? And God authenticates Elijah's message. He is a true prophet. Here's the proof of it. And Elijah does miracles, as does Elisha. Uh, but there are many other prophets in the scriptures who never did, did miracles. So, so, so even in the times of Elijah and Elisha, the, uh, miracles weren't continual all the time. Yet when Jesus comes, uh, they're very regular. And in fact, John tells us were we to write down everything, you know, no scroll on earth could contain everything that he did. So all of it, Jesus comes, and these start coming one after another. So they're, they're much more numerous when Jesus uh, came to earth. But also, if you compare with the Old Testament miracles, um, it's always evident that God is the one who is supplying the power. It's always God who does it through a human agent. 
men pray and the Lord answers and performs a miracle. Or sometimes the Lord just tells uh, his messenger what to do. And then as the messenger does it, the Lord performs a miracle. Think of the parting of the Red Sea. You know, Moses was told to to be there and raise his staff and, and watch the salvation of the Lord. And Moses tells everyone else to behold the salvation of the Lord. And this miracle occurs and it's clearly the work of the Lord. It's evident the miracles are his. But with Jesus, he simply speaks and, and things happen. He opens his mouth and power goes forth. We've seen this already as he has healed people of sickness, as he's raised the dead even. We've talked about this, just his word has this authority to make it happen. And here, in this case, raging winds, waters, they just stop and we're told there's calm when he rebukes them. In the Old Testament, it's clear that it's God who controls the water. He controls these things. The wind and the waves, they're his. He stirs them up. We read in Psalm 107 earlier. He stirs up the storm, and he's the one who calms storms. This is his domain. Psalm 89.9 says, You, Lord, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. God is the one who raises storms and quiets them. And now here's Jesus with a word doing what it is that God does. Who is this man? Well, he's God. He's God in human flesh who comes with authority over the seas, authority over the wind and the waves, with God's power. We all know, you all know the terrifying reality of nature. I'm sure you have all can tell your stories of times when you've felt the, the power of, of water or storms or whatever it might be, and you were terrified. It always amazes me. Uh, we just get a lot of rain, and it causes a whole lot of trouble. Uh, floodwaters rise, and there's this feeling of powerlessness uh, just from water. So much, it's just out of our control. And even as advanced as we are technologically, water can still cause a lot of trouble for us. Uh, But not with Jesus. He's not powerless against this force. He's the eternal word of God who took to himself a human nature. Not only here does he rebuke the wind and the waves, but also he does issue a rebuke to his disciples. Upon calming the storm, he says to them, where is your faith? I just want to take a few moments and try uh, to understand, to unpack where it was that the disciples went wrong, where it was that they erred, uh, in what way did they sin here, how did they fall short. Uh, Because Luke's clear that this threat is real. This is a real storm, this is a real threat, a real danger. Uh, He's clear in verse 23 with that. So, you know, should they not have been concerned about it? Uh, you know, they do ask Jesus for help, and yet he says they have, you know, seemingly when they wake him up, and yet he says, where is your faith? Uh, so how, you know, how is it they have no faith? They're asking him, they're appealing to him. Um, what, what, what's going on? Matthew and Mark both have this account in their Gospels, and they provide some additional information uh, that I think is, is helpful. I think the answer to the question is even right here in Luke, but if we look to Math- Matthew and Mark as well, I think it's helpful. So in both of those accounts, in Matthew and Mark, 
Jesus, before he rebukes them, saying, where is your faith? He asks them, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? So it's very clear they're, they're, they're afraid here. And that word for afraid, there's a couple of words that are used for afraid. That one sometimes is translated as cowardice or timid. So it's, it's kind of this over-the-top fear. And then, and then in Mark, also, we're told that the, the disciples actually um, accuse Jesus. They ask him, do you not care that we are perishing? So the disciples, we know clearly, are filled with fear. Now, fear is not always automatically a bad thing. Um, a person who has zero fear of anything is not a stable person. Uh, that's, that's a person who lacks sense. And uh, they're not going to get far in life if they fear absolutely nothing. Um, some parents have children that slide toward that scale. and You know this full well. Uh, but another example of this uh, is, um, for those of us who live in Saskatchewan, I'm almost sorry to use this as an example, being July, uh, but there's such thing as a healthy fear of winter and winter conditions. So we all recognize that there are times uh, when it's unwise to travel, when road conditions are bad and slippery, and when uh, temperatures are really low. Now, this is not necessarily a, a terror where we're just terrified of the cold, but it's a, it's a fear of it. You know, the thought of being stuck on Highway 35 uh, at minus 40 weather in a ditch causes a sense of, of anxiety and fear that might cause us in certain cases to stay home, to which we would all probably agree on some days is called wisdom. That's wise uh, to, to listen to that, to heed that uh, sense of, of fear. That kind of fear, if you lack it, really, you're a fool. You know, a fool is a person who just pays no attention to the weather, but just goes outside wearing whatever they want. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, it's an absurd thing to say because, you know, I think we all see this, right? So when the disciples are taking on water, and the storm is a legitimate danger, I don't think that their concern about it, and their concern for safety, is, is the problem. That alone is not the problem. Right, that's normal. That would be right. Rather, as one commentator said, they've crossed the line into immodest dread. They've lost their composure here altogether. And again, according to Mark, they even accuse Jesus, do you care? Do you even care that we're perishing? They've lost it. Uh, they've become cowardly, they're fearful, and they're, they're waking him up there's panic, and they accuse him of not even caring. They're going down. It's over. As far as they know, we're perishing. And they accuse Jesus of not even caring. What the disciples failed to grasp fully was that the one who has authority over this very problem is literally right there in their boat with them. So, it seems to me that the appropriate response for them would have been, you know, recognizing their danger, having a concern about it, There's, that's not wrong at all, uh, but to then appeal to Jesus for help with confidence in him and his concern for them, and in confidence in the Father's care and concern for them as well. Don't you even care? Well, yes, yes, he does care. Uh, that's something they should have known, should have believed, should have trusted. 
Also, I'd say it's quite likely that his disciples should have known that Jesus was the Messiah, and as such, he was not going to perish in this boat. There was work for the Messiah to do. The Old Testament points to his work. Uh, and so this was not going to be the end for them. It doesn't mean this is not a troubling situation or scary even, uh, but they should have responded with faith and known that this is not the end and appealed to Jesus for help without, you know, pardon the pun, going overboard and, and, and freaking out and panicking and accusing him of indifference. And so the bottom line here is that Jesus is God and he's worthy of our trust. The disciples' fear had crossed the line of a healthy concern and it had gone into a dreadful panic and a cowardice and accusation uh, toward the Lord. So fear, fear can and should lead us rather to faith. When circumstances cause us to want to fear, it ought to lead us to rest in the Lord and to trust in His provision, to recognize the danger and then appeal to the Lord for help and rest there knowing that ultimately everything is in His control. I remember a song, a kid's song, uh, that says with, with uh, Jesus in the boat, you can smile at the storm. Uh, that's not what this is saying, that we should just, oh, a terrible storm is swamping our boat, I'm just going to smile. Uh, that's not what it's saying, we can recognize danger. When we get bad news of sickness, disease, cancer, whatever it might be, we don't just, oh, Great, you know, and smile about it like everything's fine, right? We, we can recognize this is, this is bad news. Uh, that, that sense of fear initially, that's, that, that's normal. We're not just stoic and cold about it. Uh, we don't just robotically fear nothing. We're to, to press into the Lord and trust that He cares and He is in control ultimately, of all things. But of course, we are weak. We often cross that line into dread, into panic, into a sense of, where, where are you, Lord? You don't care, or it seems as though you don't care because you're letting this happen. Sometimes we lose sleep. Sometimes we lose functionality uh, during the daytime even as well. Again, there are things that can cause fear. We don't need to deny that. But the question is whether those things drive us to press into the Lord in prayer, to press into the promises of His Word that He's given us, press into our dependence on Him. That is, whether the fear causes us to, to press into the Lord in faith, or whether it causes, sends us off into panic and dread. And that's where we remain. And while I think, and I've said that I think the disciples should have recognized that with the Messiah, the Son of God, literally in their boat with them, uh, I think they should have probably known that they would be okay in this scenario and not have panicked and certainly not have accused him of anything. Uh, but we're not given, you and I are not given guarantees of our physical safety in this world. We're not given any guarantees of health or of long life. We don't know for sure how long we have. 
And this can cause us fear. Uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's around the bend. But what we are given are promises that God is in fact with us. That he is our ever-present help in time of need. That though the earth gives way, I will not fear, Psalm 46 says. And, and so it might be that God delivers us out of the trial and that we are delivered and given physical safety and physical health. That might be one of the ways that the Lord helps us or he might steady our mind and steady our hands and our resolve to endure that trial. We need to reckon with the fact that we are creatures and we are mortal beings. And we live in a world, because of sin, we live in a world that is filled with peril. And we don't control things, and we cannot control things, and that's not our area. We, if you, I mean, we have, we have ultimate control of nothing. And when we think we do, that's actually a delusion. And it's not our place to try to control everything either. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, said this in a sermon. He said, if you and I could understand the whole of God's way, we would be equal to God. But we are not. And faith is content with what has been revealed in his word. So we don't, we don't know everything. We don't understand all of God's ways. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Uh, but faith is trusting what the Lord has revealed to us, the promises he has given, and resting there. How much better for us to entrust our lives to the one who controls all things. As the song we sang earlier says, all that borrow life from thee are ever in your care. That's us. We borrow breath from the Lord. And we're in his care. And so we have the privilege and the honor of, of and it's good for us to, to entrust then our lives to him. And whatever comes tomorrow, whatever is around the bend, to give our lives to the faithful creator of the universe who reigns over all things. There's so many things we can fear. There's so many things that oppress us. So many concerns. My health, what's going to become of my kids, my finances, my future. Everything's fine now, but I don't know what it, lots could happen tomorrow. My family, my life itself. All these things can cause fear and worry and anxiety. But the Lord Jesus is worthy of our trust. He holds it all. And no trial comes our way without it passing through his hands. This trial, this boat on the sea in Galilee at this time, this is not a fluke, right? As Psalm 107 says, as we just read earlier, the Lord is the one who stirs up the waters and calms them. He sent this storm, and then he calmed this storm. Nothing comes our way that isn't coming from the hand of God. Even death itself, while perhaps a scary thought, I don't think anyone likes that thought. That's normal. But, even for Christians, death is not something to ultimately be in dreadful fear of. 
Again, Hebrews 2 talks about uh, being delivered from fear of death. So if you're wrestling with fear, you're wrestling with worry, with anxiety, which I think we all have our areas where we do this. Uh, it might be different for you than for me. But we all have our areas and our ways in which we, we worry, we fear, and we cross this line into sinning as we do that. If you've repented of your sins, you're trusting Christ as your Savior, would you see that the one who has authority over nature itself, over all things, is your high priest? Moreover, Romans 8 is clear, no trial comes to us, as I've said, that doesn't come from his hand, and we know that those trials are actually for our good. Now, it doesn't ever feel good at the time. Discipline, Hebrews says, does not feel good as we go through discipline, but it is for our good, it is for our sanctification, and God works all these things ultimately for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Moreover, Romans 8, nothing shall separate us if we're trusting Christ, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Not, notice what's listed. These are scary things. Tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger or sword. Those are scary things, but none of that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so as Christians, it's our privilege, it's our honor, and it's our good to entrust ourselves to the faithful care of our Lord. Luke 12, 32, Jesus there says, Fear not, little flock, he says to his disciples. Fear not, little flock. Do you hear that, the tenderness of the Lord? That's not a stinging rebuke. Fear not, little flock. Your Savior knows temptation. He was, he's truly man. He knows temptation. He knows what it is like to feel tempted towards sinful fear and anxiety. Uh, he was not merely just cold and stoic. Right? We see him sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane later in Luke. He's encouraging us here. Fear not, little flock. There's no reason ultimately to panic, to be in distress at the trials of life. And he goes on in Luke 12, 32 to say, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Whatever comes, there's ultimately, we don't have to fear because the kingdom is ours and the Father is pleased to give it to us. And so whatever comes, we'll be right with him. We are right with him if we're trusting him. We'll receive the kingdom even if life itself leaves us. And so he's encouraging us that ultimately we have no reason to fear if we are in him. So clearly as we trust him, we bring our prayers to him, we bring our petitions to him. The one who himself has the authority over all these things and can indeed help us, can deliver us, can strengthen us through the trial. We continually pour out to him in prayer, knowing he controls it all. And we wait in patient submission to his answer. And we press forward in faith. So the Lord Jesus is God who is to be trusted. He's worthy of our trust. 
Thirdly, Jesus is truly God who's worthy to be feared. I just said we shouldn't fear. Uh, now I'm saying we should fear the Lord Jesus. So I'll try to hopefully explain that. Uh, look at verse 25 again. After he asks, where is your faith? He says, and they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? This is the kind of fear, this, 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 after they're rebuked, it says they were afraid uh, and they marvel. This is the kind of fear that's appropriate to one who's in the presence of God. This amazing miracle has just occurred. He's just displayed the power of God and they're afraid. They fear and they're marveling at this. Whoa. And we see this response throughout the scriptures. Moses, we see it in Israel, at Mount Sinai, they're afraid of the Lord. Uh, we see this in Isaiah, as he gets a vision of the Lord in his temple and his holiness, he falls to the ground. We saw it earlier in Luke, the previous uh, nature miracle in Luke chapter 5, uh, where they have uh, Peter and, uh, has this miraculous catch of fish. And uh, he knows this is a miracle. And he calls Jesus Lord, he falls on his face, and he says, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus has to reassure him and say, Do not be afraid. I'm not going to destroy you. <laughs> Even though you're in, your pre you're in the presence of holiness. Uh, do not be afraid. When God's power and holiness is known, it causes sinful humans, rightly, to be afraid. And while for those who are trusting in Christ... Uh, we should not be in continual uh, dread of God's judgment. Uh, that's, that's, we, we, we should know peace with God. That's what a Christian has, a right standing with God. So it doesn't mean continual fear that God's going to judge us and punish us in hell forever for believers. But uh, the fear of the Lord is something that rem should remain, does remain with us. It's an essential matter still. We have been uh, overly conditioned to uh, think of God as purely love, as though that's basically his only attribute. Uh, additionally, if you've seen pictures of Jesus uh, around, uh, they often, often he's portrayed very, uh, very femininely. And so this, there's often this picture of Jesus, he's, he's meek, he's mild, uh, God is love, and this is sort of it. That's, this is the popular notion. That's his main, or maybe even for some, it's his only real attribute. But as the one with authority over nature itself, being God, <laughs> Jesus is to be feared. Certainly this does not deny his grace, does not deny his tenderness, does not deny his compassion, does not deny all those things. But he is worthy of awe, of, of respect, of reverence, fear. However, many, instead, they want to twist Jesus' words. They want Jesus, or some form of Jesus, but they don't want his words. Certainly not his words about judgment. Uh, certainly not his words about how we must believe in him. He's the only way to the Father, etc. Uh, they want some form of Jesus, but not his words. 
We saw in the last previous weeks, earlier in the chapter, at the, the parable of the sower, that many will not receive his message, that the seed will be sown, and for many hearts they'll remain hardened, uh, different forms of unbelief, it'll look different in different people, uh, but many will not receive him, will not receive his message. And yet here, at his word and at his rebuke, the elements, the wind and the waves, listen. They obey. They submit to him. Do you see the reverence that Jesus is owed? Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord begins with a recognition of his holiness, of who he is, that he's worthy to be feared, that he is creator and we are not, a lowliness. And if we want to truly have wisdom or truly have real knowledge, it begins with this. Again, it it doesn't mean that as those who are trusting in Him, we should perpetually just be in dread of Him and in terror. There is a time when that should have been the case. We should have felt that. Uh, Grasping God's holiness, His power, His justice, uh, does lead and should lead sinners to fearfulness of that judgment and therefore to seek His mercy, to desire His grace, to throw ourselves upon His mercy. To look to Jesus Christ in faith, the only Savior, the only one who can deal with our sins by dying for them on the cross and rising again from the dead. But fear of God, while that deals with his judgment against us, fear of God doesn't stop there altogether. It continues as we continue to remember that he is the sovereign king who rules all things, and we are not. We are creatures. And so even now, we know that God is not one to be trifled with. We don't, we don't come to Him. We should not come to Him flippantly. We don't treat Him now as buddy. He's still God. And we still revere Him as Creator. And this just highlights the fact that Jesus would refer to those He saves as His brother. Highlights the amazing reality of that. And this fear of God, it can be a helpful antidote to other sinful fears. One writer says this, Sometimes Christians have an inordinate fear of losing the things of this world. This is a fear that comes from unbelief. Maybe more precisely, it is a fear that comes from believing too much in the world, from trusting too much in the things of this world to satisfy you at the deepest level. It comes from an excessive love for created things, and desiring them too much. So sometimes our fear, our fears are the result of loving the world too much. Whether it's the fear of man, you know, where we want people to think rightly of us, we craft our image just so, and we don't want anything to come in the way of that, and so we do things to try to please man, and we tiptoe around sensitive issues maybe, we we don't want to talk about sin or judgment maybe or whatever it might be. We just we, we want people to, to, to like us. So we, we, we fear losing face or looking bad. There's all kinds of ways fear of man can reveal itself. Maybe we love the world too much and we fear man. Or perhaps it's the fear of losing 
uh, a comfortable living in this world. Perhaps it's, it's fear of uh, losing a job or losing finances and then I'd have to give up this, this life that I hold and all that I've worked to attain and, uh, and, and this comfort that I know and I do not want to do without. And so we panic at the thought of losing it because we love that perhaps too much. Maybe it's a fear of losing life itself. We just, this is, this, we just love this too much here. We live for this world. And so the thought of health trouble or loss of life is just overwhelming for us. And so as we try to fight these sinful fears, to put off these sinful fears, then we're to seek to put on trust in the Lord and to put on the fear of God. To let reverence for Him govern our attitudes, govern our actions. To revere Him more than anything else. That's, that's our pursuit, so that it's, it's His pleasure we desire more than whatever we might find in this world. But just as we bring this to a close, I, I, I want to say a couple things for, okay, so we ought to fear God. How do we pursue this? How do we seek, you know, to, to, to fear Him, to trust Him more? I just want to give a couple things. There's lots that could be said here, but just a few very practical things. The first would be um, to study God and to study His attributes, first and foremost in Scripture, obviously. But studying and considering His transcendence, that is, the things about God that make Him God, the things that don't... Uh, that aren't things that we can really experience. So the, the kinds of, uh, of attributes I'm thinking of are his eternality. He's always been, he always will be. I mean, just, just spend some time considering that. From everlasting to everlasting you are God. Consider that he is a being for whom that's a fitting description. Consider his greatness. His, uh, his unchangeableness or immutability. He, he does not change. He cannot change. He's always been the same. His uh, self-existence, sometimes the word, his divine aseity, that is, he needs nothing. He lacks nothing. Uh, he's not dependent on anyone or anything. These are not characteristics or attributes that we know, but they accurately and truly describe God. Of course, we cannot exhaust God and all that he is, but he does tell us about himself in his word. And so study him, learn his attributes. If you want helpful books that draw some of these attributes out, I can help you find those. Study God. Meditate on the scriptures. I don't just mean read the Bible. I mean meditate on it. Consider them. Study them. Think about them. You might read a verse or a psalm, and just camp there and consider it. When you do read the Bible, read it with an eye toward, what does this tell me about God? It is ultimately uh, a book about God. And uh, it's telling us about Him and His work of salvation and ultimately points to His glory. So as you read the scriptures, look for that. What is this telling me about the creator of the universe? And as you find those things out, as you read and you see what it's telling you about who God is and what he's about and his greatness, camp on those things, consider those things, think on them, dwell on them. Perhaps before you go to bed, 
You need to open your Bible, read a psalm, consider it, camp on it. A psalm that extols the glory and greatness of God. Maybe for you, you need to get up earlier in the morning. Uh, maybe you need to, you know, start your day there. Maybe that's when you're at your sharpest. Uh, everyone's different in, in when we're at our best, but, but we need to be in the Scriptures, saturating ourselves in the Word. There's music that is directly word-for-word word psalms. A great way to go to sleep, thinking about the psalms, rehearsing them, meditating on the Scriptures as you lay in bed, and meditating on who God is, even as you go to sleep. Another possibility, read biographies of Christians in the past who've, who've feared the Lord. I think of, there's lots of examples, but um, Whitfield, uh, John Whitcliffe, uh, Wycliffe is one. Uh, the man who translated, you know, we owe a lot too for translating the scriptures into English. Uh, the, the man um, uh, was, was, I mean, he was hunted. <laughs> and pursued. Tyndale, likewise, owe him a great debt of gratitude for his translation work into English. Hunted on the run, but hunted by men, ultimately martyred and killed for his work of translating the scriptures into English. Uh, when we read these stories, it can be encouraging to us to see other faithful people who are flesh and blood like us, not perfect people, sinners who needed God's grace, and yet who feared the Lord, have victory in this area. I think what I'm ultimately what I'm saying is to fill our minds with the things of the Lord and to put our attention there. More often, we need to decide to do what is best with our time instead of what is permissible with our time. So what I mean by that is, yes, uh, watching a movie, for example, is not sinful. That's not necessarily in and of itself a sinful act. That's a permissible activity a Christian can do. But maybe you need to decide against, against doing that more often in order to do the better work of spending that evening in the Word, in prayer. Perhaps when you rise in the morning... It's permissible that the first thing you would pick up is your phone and you spend some time checking whatever it is you check. That's a permissible thing. It's not a sin necessarily to do that, but maybe you should choose the better thing instead and start that day off by grabbing the scriptures and turning to that. Jesus is truly God. He's worthy to be feared and he's worthy of our submission. So who is this then? That he commands even winds and waters and they obey him. Well, he's the Lord Jesus. He's the eternal Son of God who came to earth as a man to redeem fallen sons and daughters of Adam. He's of the same substance as God the Father, very God of very God. He's truly God, that is, who's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our fear and reverence. He's worthy of our submission. Moreover, he offers grace he offers rest to those who will confess their sin to Him, place their faith in Him for salvation, trust in the provision He's made for them at the cross. So may we see His worthiness to be trusted. May we rest in His merits and in His grace. 
May we see his divine authority and his power over all. May we see his care for his children and disciples. May our sinful fears be, may they subside. And may our hearts rejoice in the comfort of knowing that Jesus is ours by faith. And maybe more importantly and more significantly that we are his. And we belong to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we confess to you that we are sinful people. We are fearful people. There is so much that frightens us. So much that causes us worry and anxiety. And often it crosses the line into sinfulness where we are panicking and we're in dread over something. Father, we confess that our flesh is weak even where our spirit might be willing. And we ask you for your help. Help us to trust your word. Help us to trust you that you bring us trials for our own good even. Even very difficult ones. Father, help us to know that we need not pretend that it's not hard, but that we are to trust and can trust that ultimately you are good even through it and that you are faithful even in the midst and that you will see us through. And so many here can testify to the fact that you do see us through. We thank you that you do love us, your children, that you care for us, that we have that assurance even in the midst of difficulty. And God, I pray that we would be a people who are not fearful, that we can face this world and all the trials that, are, that come and that are coming that we don't even know about, and we can do it knowing that we are yours and that ultimately it is your pleasure to give us the kingdom, whatever befalls us now. Father, we pray for grace and strength to stand and to not lose heart. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.